God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has commanded all people everywhere to repent of sin. He requires all men and nations to believe the gospel, worship him, and obey his eternal moral law. He has promised to bless those nations which obey him, but to curse those which do not. Our forefathers shed their blood to leave us a heritage of faith, religious freedom, political liberty, and material blessing. God himself has blessed our nation with every possible benefit. Our generation has been entrusted to steward this heritage and pass it on unsquandered to our children. As God's people, the church, we are called to be a peculiar people who in love God with all our hearts, live distinctively holy lives, train our families in godliness, witness to our neighbors, and disciple our countrymen in the ways of God. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. As a prophetic people, we are called to care for the spiritual condition of our country, to pray for all, to protect the weak, to seek justice for the innocent, to defend the poor, but equally to resist the oppressor, rebuke the disobedient, and urgently warn the spiritually negligent, be they kings, priests, or common men, of the dangers and judgments awaiting those who refuse to repent and turn to the living God. As a people of the word, we are called to build our nation and its God-given institutions upon the righteous foundations of his eternal moral law, lest we be overtaken by wicked ideologies and fall prey to the control of profane and depraved men. As free Christian citizens, we are called to establish righteous civil government, to pray, vote, boldly proclaim God's word in the public square, and openly support and elect godly officials. We are charged to publicly denounce, withstand, and defeat officials who despoil our godly heritage or defy God's eternal law by their public actions or private behavior. <clears throat> However, we have forsaken our first love. We, families, our churches, and our spiritual and political leaders have turned our backs on him. We have grown lukewarm and indifferent to sin. We have tolerated and even participated in the dominant evils of our sin-filled age. We have disdained our godly forefathers by forfeiting their costly legacy and defrauded our children by wasting their inheritance. We have despised our nation's founders by passively permitting the true record of their faith, vision, and sacrifice to rewritten and eradicated from the collective memory of our people. We have committed treason against God and our countrymen by apathetically permitting God's enemies to systematically remove his law and word from public life, thereby destroying the foundations of our society. We have betrayed ours and future generations by failing to be the salt and light God made us to be. We have not prayed cared, protected, defended, nor sought justice for the needy as we ought. Neither have we resisted oppressors or warned the negligent and disobedient. We are guilty before God and man. Thus, confusion has overtaken us. Our families are broken and our communities are torn. 
Are civil servants and magistrates ordained to protect the innocent and punish evildoers have become corrupt lords and tyrants who shamelessly lie, crush us with confiscatory taxes, suffocate us with oppressive regulation, bankrupt our nation with profligate spending, and control our thoughts with anti-Christian intimidation. Yet we affirm and reaffirm them. Too many of our churches are impotent and our pastors mute. Godlessness, pride, dishonesty, injustice, fornication, abortion, homosexuality, pornography, divorce, child abuse, parental neglect, violence, murder, suicide, drug abuse, greedy materialism, and covenant-breaking now define our national character. God's curses for disobedient have progressively come upon us, yet we stubbornly refuse to repent. If we continue in this path, we will be utterly destroyed. No man can save us, but if we will meet God's conditions, there is still hope. Your cheat sheets. I'm going to read this part. Therefore, considering the urgency of the hour, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, plainly instructed by God's word, we hereby summon the elders and all who live in the land who are moved by God's word and spirit to meet in solemn assembly before the Lord, to repent and cry out to him on behalf of ourselves, our churches, and our nation that his forgiveness, favor, and renewed blessing might be granted to each and all of us. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. See, the first requirement on the path to renewal is to humble ourselves. To fall on our knees and get on our faces before God in repentant prayer. Over and over the scriptures teach us. Our founding fathers sense the need for a call to fall, if you will, in view of the monumental struggle they faced when they were engaged with Britain. The First Continental Congress called for a day of public humiliation, fasting, and prayer throughout the colonies on July 20, 1775, just after war broke out. James Warren wrote to Samuel Adams and said this, if you can imagine, now we have 300, about 310 million people living here in the United States. At this time, it was 2.7, about 3 million. He wrote to Samuel Adams saying, Three millions of people on their knees at once, supplicating the aid of heaven, is a striking circumstance and a very singular one in America. May the blessings of heaven follow in answer to our prayers. God is sovereign. He is holy and he is love. We, on the other hand, are sinners. We're saved from the severity of his wrath towards sin only by the fierceness of his love through Christ. And when we drift away in disobedience, 
we experience His discipline. His judgments are just. So the pathway back must begin with a humility and a brokenness before the Lord, a desperation to find the face of God, a heart cry for the mercy of God to come, and a desire to turn from our sinful ways. All of that bringing us to a resolve to return to the ways of God. Psalm 95, verse 6 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Let's humble ourselves and pray for the next five or ten minutes all in the sanctuary. Now I'm going to literally ask you to kneel down. If that's something you cannot do, please don't feel forced or any legalistic thing. You're more able to pray sitting up than pray sitting up, but we want you praying. Amen? Amen. But this humbling and fasting, I know a number of you are fasting this morning, coming to the service, and... Uh, it's a humiliating time for us as a nation. We might be celebrating. I'm not trying to steal yesterday's celebration away from you. But we're not going to have many more of those if we don't humble ourselves and pray. So for the next five or ten minutes, we'll just have some background stuff going on for you and maybe even coach you a few times through the session. But just would we get on our knees and pray. If you need to slip out of your seat, you want a more come down here and kneel or get on your face or whatever. But let's cry out to God together. Let's ask him to reverse some of these things we were just reading. Go to him in repentance and ask him to forgive us. Stand in the gap and build up the hedge this morning. You are intercessors for America. You're not just praying for yourself, although you might start there, praying and asking God to forgive you. And you may even list a few things that are issues in your life before him. But at some point we need to shift gears and begin to pray on behalf of a nation and understand that we are priests unto the Lord this morning and have a responsibility to stand in the gap and build up the hedge and to pray for mercy over our country.
Mm -hmm. Father, we thank you that you are hearing our prayers this morning, Lord God. Father, we thank you that our hearts are joining together with millions of other believers this morning who are also upon their knees all across this nation. Lord, as we cry out to you for your mercies. Lord, your word says your mercies are new every morning. We thank you that you give us new mercies today to stand in the gap and to build up the hedge. Lord, we worship you that you are God alone and we confess to you that we have forsaken your ways as a nation. We have drawn aside and pursued all kinds of other things and we have put everything else in the place of you. Lord, this is nothing but idol worship and a failure to follow to know you. Lord, would you forgive us as a nation this morning? We ask for your mercies to come and fall upon the, especially, Lord God, the church that's on its knees this morning crying out to you across the country. Lord, that you would refresh her and revive her by your spirit. Lord, that you would pour into her your investment once again. Holy Spirit, that you would be free to bring your correction and conviction into our hearts again so that we can live correctly. That you would put a strengthening in our spinal our spiritual spinal cord so that we stand upright for truth and righteousness once again. Lord, give us a voice again in the community of this country that we would not be shouted down, that we would not be defeated because your spirit is within us. Give us a voice that preaches truth and stands for righteousness and defends the poor and the weak and the widow and the homeless. God and the, the single family, Lord, those who are in greatest need, that we would stand up for justice and righteousness in their lives. Lord, we face so many things, and we need so much help, and we need your forgiveness most of all. Lord, you said to us that we should pray and not faint in Luke chapter 18. Lord, you said we should pray and not cave in, and there's a fear that we are caving in. Lord, that we are not holding up and we're not being true to the call you've brought us to. Forgive us this morning in Jesus' name and give us strength not to cave in. Holy God. Almighty God, Holy Spirit, come.
of your homes, clean out your idols. Remove these things that disgust me. I'm a jealous God. I will not have any other God before me. Thank you, Lord. Come to me pure in heart and simple. Leave all these gods down. Put them down. Put them down. I will burn them with fire. Oh, come in your heart. I will burn them with fire. Oh, God. I'll remove them from the false gods you have let come to the earth over the years. Do it, Lord. Yes. Yes, Lord. Come, Lord. Come, Lord. Come, take them away, Lord God. Lord, identify those things that are in these places in our lives, Lord. Put your finger on our heart this morning, Holy Spirit. Convict us of this sin and righteousness judgment let your work be made known in our homes God we go home today we pray that you will point out to us those things that we have surrounded ourselves with that have become idols before you and remove them as you have said you would we ask it in Jesus name you know we need a lot of one thing in life We need a lot of grace. We need all the grace that God can give us. Amen. We can't accomplish these things on our own. His grace comes to move us. His grace comes to help us. We're going to sing it. And then we're going to have communion together. Let's sing about His grace this morning. Let's make a declaration. That it's your grace that makes us free, O oh Lord. Amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Savior, a ransom me. 
communion served at this time, those who are serving, would you come and just pass the elements out for us and let's continue to worship. And uh, then we'll, we'll celebrate together. Hallelujah has promised good to me. Secures and seal and portion be as long as life My chains are gone. I've been happening in various churches throughout our community this morning in different ways, different styles, I'm sure. But I did put a call out for a gathering this afternoon at 3 o'clock at Veterans Park to, to just call the body together. And I'm calling you to come. Plenty of parking over there, carpool, fight the traffic, whatever you need. Bring your sunscreen, maybe even an umbrella. I don't know what kind of shade's available out there in the park at 3 o'clock, but We'll be there for about an hour, and we're just going to do the same thing. We're going to kneel and pray. And you might want to wear your dungarees so you can get in the grass and bring a chair, whatever you need. But be prepared to pray. Pray with people in groups probably throughout the park. And then following that, if you have time and you see a, a vision in this with me, that you would take maybe additional time following the prayer gathering at, when we're done at 4 to simply walk Take a place in this community and walk, pray it. Pray or walk it. Walk through town. Maybe go in little groups as we leave the park and just canvas the whole city there. And Maybe some of you want to drive off and go to the city building in Big Bear Lake or some community center or school or something. But we could just begin to take some ground back for the kingdom of God in this community. This is a responsibility that we have. And uh, I want to encourage you to do it. Even if you leave that prayer meeting at the park at 4 and say, I'm going to Starbucks. Well, then take ground at Starbucks, okay? 
you know, just march around the doggone thing before walk through the drive-thru. <laughs> well, you get my drift? We're going to celebrate the Lord's body this morning, broken for us. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, he blessed it, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat it, eat it, and do it in remembrance of me. After the supper, he took the cup. He said, this blood, this is the blood of a new covenant. A covenant that I'm making with my blood. One of our prayers this morning was that the Lord would forgive us for being covenant breakers. He has never broken covenant with us. You know, every time it rains, which is rare here in our community, but every time it rains, there's a rainbow somewhere. Because God said, I'm making covenant with mankind that never again will I flood the earth. And as a reminder, I'm going to put a rainbow in the heavens. And when it rains, we still get a rainbow because God is still good to his word. I love the fact that there's so many attempts to explain a rainbow mathematically and color-filled and how it works and prismatically and all this. And really when they get done, they say, we really know how it works. We, we got some ideas how it works, but we really can't tell you exactly how it works. Well, that's because God decided how it work. And it was a symbol of covenant, not just some mathematical or colorful symbol that would be in the sky. It's something that remains to tell us that he is good for his word. And he's calling on the church to get good with our word back to him. And we can't do it unless we have grace. Amen. I fail too much. I fall too short. But with his grace, we can keep moving forward. Has everybody been served? Are we good this morning? Lord, we thank you that when we ask the question, has everybody been served? It's We know that we all have been served by your death on the cross. That you stepped up and took our sin in your own body. You took our penalty. You took the, the pain. You took the punishment. You took the ridicule that belonged to us. And we ask you this morning to refresh us in forgiveness. Lord, as we would confess to you and have as we've prayed this morning that we are those who fall short of your glory. So forgive us. Let this mercy come upon us again today in Jesus' name as we cry out to you. And Lord, as we celebrate your broken body and the blood that you spilled out, we know it's because you said we should until you return. And we look with watchful eye. Lord, you are coming again. You're coming to take your people to be with you forever and to live for eternity. Lord, turn our hearts to that thought in Jesus' name. Let's celebrate. Let's eat together. Jesus, be our Savior today. If you've never accepted Christ, you need to call on Him right now and say, Jesus, be my Savior. Forgive my sin. Make me one of your children. Help me to live for you. I forsake my old life. And I surrender to you today. Jesus took the cup. Let's celebrate Him together. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine.
be forever mine. Let's declare it. You are forever mine. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. You can pass those cups to an aisle. No. Get those from you. You got your seat belts on. I want to show you a little video clip here.
Now that's the question. What does it all mean? What does it mean? Don't you feel tired? Just reading all that? My goodness. We are living in exponential times. I would just suggest that you not try and keep up. It's a suggestion. A lot of you are trying. Probably going to do okay. I'm taken aside by just the sheer number of networking and uh, what's it called? All the Facebook and uh, people stuff. I'm keeping up on you, though. I'm reading all your stuff. I really am. You don't believe me, do you? You want me to tell a few things that you wrote recently on Facebook? <laughs> Social networking is incredible, isn't it? you got friends in all corners of the world, and uh, some of them you haven't even met yet. I write a blog for the Joe Kabisky Group. It's read by 300-plus people around the world every day, and I don't know who those people are. But it's being translated into Korean for the Korean church as well. So someday, you know, I'll get to meet some of those people and they'll say, you should have learned to write, buddy. What does it all mean? You know, we tend to think that we're living in the only times when the church was seeming to fail. But that's not true. There's a book called The Churching of America by Roger Fink and Rodney Stark. And they they examined uh, denominational statistics in the United States between 1776 and 1850. And they concluded that the Protestant mainline, which was the Anglicans, the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, began to collapse rapidly, not as we might think in the last several decades, but in the late 18th century. So that by 1850... The Baptists and the Methodists, who were vigorous evangelical sects in that era, dominated the religious landscape. These two denominations grew significantly because they reached previously unchurched people. In 1776, only 17% of the population was affiliated with a church. By 1850, they invented cell phones. I'm just kidding. That's not true. Um, By 1850... That number had doubled to 34%. Most of the growth was a result of the gains by the Methodists and the Baptists on the frontier. The mainline denominations had been infected with secularism, resulting in a loss of vigor in evangelism. For Fink and Stark, the authors, secularization means this to move from otherworldliness to present a more distant and indistinct conception of the supernatural, to relax the moral restrictions on members, and to surrender claims to an exclusive and superior truth. I know that's a big sentence, so I'm going to read it again. Secularization means to move from otherworldliness to present a more distant and indistinct conception of the supernatural, to relax the moral restrictions on members, and to surrender claims to an exclusive and superior truth. The consequence of secularization is the diminished commitment 
to evangelism. It's hard to witness to a faith that lacks conviction and offers so little. The message of the mainline churches had become too vague and too accommodating to have an impact. As a result, the mainline churches watched from the safety of the larger towns and cities along the Atlantic seaboard while the Baptists and Methodists moved west with the frontier. I'm going to read to you a tract. It's called Who Cares? Now, here's the ground rules. You look pretty comfortable, but I want to stir you up. This is an interactive service. Just reach up and push my nose. Just kidding. Push this little button on my forehead. Interactive. You like interactive stuff all day on the computer, right? You just poke and things happen. There's a, a, a piece of art here. There's one right back by the sound booth. And there's a third one in the hallway. They're all the same. And what I'm going to invite you to do is get out of your seats. And if you haven't had a chance to take a look at these, I want you to come and look at them. Just mill around. Find one close to you. Be cordial. Don't push anybody out of the way. But to get up and to come and to look at it. You'll have to move around because of the glare on the glass and that. There's one here. There's one there. There's one in the hallway. And I'm going to get, begin to read to you the story behind this piece of art. So if you would, just mill around. Not too much conversation, please, so I can read over the top of you. This is a painting that depicts... The message, Who Cares, by General William Booth, who was involved in evangelizing the United States after he started in England in the 1800s. On one of my recent journeys, as I gazed from the coach window, I was led into a train of thought concerning the conditions of the multitudes around me. They were living carelessly in the most open and shameless rebellion against God without a thought for their eternal welfare. As I looked out the window, I seemed to see them all, millions of people all around me given up to their drink and their pleasure, their dancing and their music, their business and their anxieties, their politics and their troubles, ignorant, willfully ignorant in many cases and in other instances knowing all about the truth and not caring at all. But all of them, the whole mass of them, sweeping on and up in their blasphemies and devilries to the throne of God. While my mind was thus engaged, I had a vision. I saw a dark and stormy ocean. Over it, the black clouds hung heavily. Through them, every now and then, vivid lightning flashed and thunder, th loud thunder rolled while the winds moaned and the waves rose and foamed, towered and broke, only to rise and foam and tower and break again. In that ocean, I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings plunged and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again, and then some sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this rock, I saw a vast platform, Onto this platform, I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling, drowning wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. 
On looking more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued industriously working with and scheming by ladders and ropes, boats and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of this sea. Here and there were some who actually jumped into the water regardless of all the consequences in their passion to rescue the perishing. And I hardly know which gladdened me most. The sight of the poor drowning people climbing onto the rocks, reaching the place of safety, or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those whose whole beings were wrapped up in the effort for their deliverance. As I looked on, I saw the, that the occupants of the platform were quite a mixed company. That is, they were divided into different sets or classes, and they occupied themselves with different pleasures and employments. But only a very few of them seemed to make it their business to get the people out of the sea. But what puzzled me most was the fact that though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not even seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care, about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their eyes many of whom were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and even their own children. Now, this astonishing unconcern could not have been the result of ignorance or lack of knowledge because they lived right there in full sight of it all and even talked about it sometimes. Many even went regularly to hear lectures and sermons in which the awful state of these poor drowning creatures was described. I already said that the occupants of this platform were engaged in different pursuits and pastimes. Some of them were absorbed night and day in trading and business in order to make gain, storing up their savings in boxes, safes, and the like. Many spent their time in amusing themselves with growing flowers on the side of the rock, others in painting pieces of cloth or in playing music or in dressing themselves up in different styles and walking about to be admired. Some occupied themselves chiefly in eating and drinking. Others were taken up with arguing about the poor drowning creatures that had already been rescued. But the thing to me that seemed the most amazing was that those on the platform to whom he called, who heard his voice and felt they ought to obey it, at least they said they did, those who confessed to love him much and were in full sympathy with him in the task he had undertaken, who worshipped him or who professed to do so, were so taken up with their trades and professions, their money-saving and pleasures, their families and circles, their religions and arguments about it, and their preparation for going to the mainland, that they did not listen to the cry that came to them from this wonderful being who had himself gone down into the sea. Anyway, if they heard it, they didn't heed it. They did not care. And so the multitude went on right before them, struggling and shrieking and drowning in the darkness. And then I saw something that seemed to me even more strange than anything that had gone on before in this strange vision. I saw that some of these people on the platform whom this wonderful being had called to, wanting them to come and help him in his difficult task of saving these perishing creatures, were always praying and crying out to him to come to them. Some wanted him to come and stay with them and spend his time and strength in making them happier. 
Others wanted him to come and take away various doubts and misgivings they had concerning the truth of some letters which he had written them. Some wanted him to come and make them feel more secure on the rock, so secure that they would be quite sure that they should never slip off again into the ocean. Numbers of others wanted him to make them feel quite certain that they would really get off the rock and onto the mainland someday. Because, as a matter of fact, it was well known that some had walked so carelessly as to lose their footing and had fallen back again into the stormy waters. So these people used to meet and get up as high on the rock as they could. And looking toward the mainland where they thought the great being was, they would cry out, Come to us! Come help us! And all the while he was down by his spirit among the poor struggling, drowning creatures in the angry sea, with his arms around them, trying to drag them out and looking up all oh, so longingly, but all in vain to those on the rock, crying to them with his voice, all hoarse from calling, Come to me! Come and help me! And then I understood it all. It was plain enough. That sea was the ocean of life. The sea of real, actual human existence. That lightning was the gleaming of piercing truth coming from Jehovah's throne. That thunder was the distant echoing of the wrath of God. Those multitudes of people shrieking, struggling, and agonizing in the stormy sea were the thousands and thousands of poor harlots and harlot makers, of drunkards and drunkard makers, of thieves, liars, blasphemers, and ungodly people of every kindred tongue and nation. And oh, what a black sea it was. And oh, what multitudes of rich and poor, ignorant and educated, were there. They were all so unalike in their outward circumstances and conditions, yet all alike in one thing, all sinners before God, all held by and holding on to some iniquity, fascinated by some idol, the slaves of some devilish lust, and ruled by the foul fiend from the bottomless pit. All alike in one thing? No, all alike in two things. Not only the same in their wickedness, but unless rescued, the same in their sinking, sinking down, down, down to the same terrible doom. That great sheltering rock represented Calvary the place where Jesus had died for them. And the people on it were those who had been rescued. The way they used their energies, gifts, and time represented the occupations and amusements of those who professed to be saved from sin and hell, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The handful of fierce, determined ones who were risking their own lives in saving the perishing were true soldiers of the cross of Jesus. That mighty being who was calling to them from the midst of the angry waters was the Son of God, the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is still struggling and interceding to save the dying multitudes about us from this terrible doom of damnation, and whose voice can be heard above the music, machinery, and noise of life, calling on the rescued to come and help him save the world. My friends in Christ, you are rescued from the waters. You are on the rock. He is in the dark sea calling on you to come to him and help him. Will you go? Look for yourselves. The surging sea of life crowded with perishing multitudes rolls up to the very spot on which you stand. Leaving the vision, I now come to speak of the fact, a fact that is as real as the Bible, as real as the Christ who hung on the cross, 
as real as the judgment day will be, and as real as the heaven and hell that will follow it. Look, don't be deceived by appearances. Men and things are not what they seem. All who are not on the rock are in the sea. Look at them from the standpoint of the great white throne. And what a sight you have. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is through His Spirit in the midst of this dying multitude struggling to save them. And He is calling on you to jump into the sea, to go right away to His side and help Him in the holy strife. Will you jump? That is, will you go to His feet and place yourself absolutely at His disposal? A young Christian once came to me and told me that for some time she had been giving the Lord her profession and prayers and money. But now she wanted to give him her life. She wanted to go right into the fight. In other words, she wanted to go to his assistance in the sea. As when a man from the shore, seeing another struggling in the water, takes off those outer garments that would hinder his efforts and leaps to the rescue. So will you who still linger on the bank thinking and singing and praying about the poor, perishing souls. Lay aside your shame, your pride, your cares about other people's opinions, your love of ease, and all the selfish loves that have kept you back for so long and rush to the rescue of this multitude of dying men and women. Does the surging sea look dark and dangerous? Unquestionably, it is so. There's no doubt that the leap for you, as for everyone who takes it, means difficulty and scorn and suffering. For you, it may mean more than this. It may mean death. He who beckons you from the sea, however, knows what it will mean. And knowing, he still calls to you and bids you come. You must do it. You cannot hold back. You have enjoyed yourself in Christianity long enough. You have had pleasant feelings, pleasant songs, pleasant meetings, pleasant prospects. There has been much of human happiness, much clapping of hands and shouting of praises, very much of heaven on earth. Now then, go to God and tell him you are prepared as much as necessary to turn your back upon it all, and that you are willing to spend the rest of your days struggling in the midst of these perishing multitudes, whatever it may cost you. You must do it. With the light that is now broken in upon your mind and the call that is now sounding in your ears and the beckoning hands that are now before your eyes, you have no alternative. To go down among the perishing crowds is your duty. Your happiness from now on will consist in sharing their misery, your ease in sharing their pain, your crown in helping them to bear the cross, and your heaven in going into the very jaws of hell to rescue them. Now, what will you do? When I titled the message for this morning, I titled it, Now What Does It All Mean? That exponential video came along and ended with the same question. What does it all mean? Let's rehearse for a moment that from the beginning of this year, God has been speaking to us, calling us to pray. He's been beckoning us to be on our faces and on our knees and to intercede. 
for the church, for the body of Christ, for our community, for the world. He's been telling us with promise, if you'll call to me, I'll answer you and show you great and mighty things that you don't know. If you'll cry out to me, my ear will be bent right down towards your prayer. And that's how we tend to see it, that God's leaning in, waiting for us to cry out so that he can respond. But what does it all mean? Why should we pray? Why should we have days where we get on our faces like we did today and bow our knees before Christ as a cooperative or a collective body of people, a community of believers that we call ourselves the body of Christ? Why do we do these things? It's because humanity is drowning without Christ. It's not so that we can be better or have a better nation. It's not so that we can have more pleasure or more ease or better uh, bank accounts or more prosperous living. This was written by General William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, which in itself has lost its way. From the founding, General Booth, he used to say about his cadets, as he trained them, you know, you've seen them in uniform, and maybe some of us in this generation would only know them as having hung around maybe at the, you know, dinging the bell at Christmas or something. But the first Salvation Army dressed outfitted themselves, stood on street corners and played music and sang hymns in the streets and then preached the gospel in front of bars and told people to repent. I think it was when Booth started, after a short period of time, he had like 17 or 18, maybe 30 workers that worked with him. But in seven years, it went to a 1,000 of workers. And then after that, the Salvation Army literally touched every continent on the globe with the message of salvation through Jesus. They went in to places that you... I mean, I think this says on here, his byword, his whole life can be summed up in his own words. Go for souls and go for the worst. (laughs) They went where nobody else would go. And I read you this little snippet and you thought, why did you read that about these authors, you know? Why do I need to know about Fink and Struggle or Wagnall or whatever it was? is because they were saying the church, even back in this time, started to fail in its mainline approach because it wouldn't leave the comfort of the city. And the only churches that were doing good were those that were following into the frontier where people lived and where the worst of sinners were hanging out. All the nice people were in town and went to the established mainline churches. And then they started paying their clergy so they could have nice sermons and nice seating and nice buildings. But you had all these circuit riders who were on horseback and going from town to town and just preaching, repent or die. <laughs> and they were causing revivals to flood into the nation. We've gone from 3 million people to 310 million people in this nation. And today I would say we're probably not much better off than we were when those guys went into the frontiers to preach the gospel. And now Jesus is coming to you and I saying, this is what it all means. We need to keep preaching the gospel. And we can't tone it down. We can't secularize it. We can't make it modest and popular. It's going to be uncomfortable. But so are miracles. You know, when somebody gets healed of their blindness or their deafness or their short-leggedness or their polio or whatever it was or their, or their AIDS, that's a miracle and that's uncomfortable to people because they can't handle the fact that God invaded their planet. And the kingdom of God has come among men. And that is our message. That's the message of Jesus. He said, go and preach that the kingdom of God has come among you. 
And truly, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, if the kingdom of God comes in the midst of us, change will occur. If we allow Jesus to be at the center of what we say and do, and we allow his word to take precedence in our lives, things will change for the better. Booth was said to have come upon with some of his cadets who had just been preaching into a crowd into a, at a bar. They're standing outside of Chad's, if you will. And they're preaching into the, these lost sinners that we used to be inside the bar. And some of them come out and start throwing things at them, kicked one of them to death in the street, and spit on others. And Booth came along as one, one guy was trying to wipe the spit off his uniform which I'm sure was a respectful thing because the general was right there. And he said, no, leave it. Leave it. It's a badge of blessing. So go for the sinners and go for the worst of them. And when they got saved, they began to transform the world. They began to march into every corner of society and declare the kingdom of God has come again among us. This is what it all means to us. Is we got to shake ourselves out of any lethargy We have to tell ourselves we're not going to be pleasant all the time with people who don't know Christ. I went for a walk through town the other day and it was fun for me because I got saved at Jack in the Box. And I was walking and praying through all that crowd on, I think it was Friday. They're everywhere, aren't they? They're everywhere. (laughs) And they're parking everywhere. And I walked and I prayed and I realized how distant I had become from my own community. I couldn't really name the business owners. And when I came to Chad's and was praying, I thought about going in, but then I thought about you. (laughs) I thought, I won't go in there alone. I didn't want to bump into any of you. (laughs) But this message on my heart, it was compelling to say, we need to go in there. There's people in there who are lost. We have to pull them out of the darkness. It says pull them out of the fire, despising and hating the smell of smoke that's on them, but don't, you know, don't participate with it. Jesus always went in and ate with sinners, didn't he? But he didn't live with them. He brought them out to safety. He brought them out to get on the rock. If you look at these paintings again before you go, you might see it a little different. And I'm going to ask uh, some of our gentlemen to come and and I want each of you to have a copy of this, what I read this morning. And cell leaders, what we have left, um, I would like to give to you for your groups for this week. Um, can you just make sure everybody gets one of these? I'd appreciate it. This community needs Jesus Christ as its Savior. And you know, communities don't get saved. People get saved. Individuals get saved. And we use the terminology saved. Well, you know, you've got to get saved from something and you have to get saved to something. You get saved from your old lifestyle. You get saved from the penalty, the wrath, and the judgment that's coming on every person on the earth that is... And as Booth said, let me state this very clearly, this fact... Everyone who is not on the rock is in the sea. It was very clear to him there was only one way to heaven, and that was through the person of Jesus Christ. And if you were not a Christian, then you had no hope. The only thing that was coming for you was judgment and the uh, white throne of God. 
We've got to ask God today, as we're going through this community, to give us eyes to see the lost humanity all around us. And to not take for granted that they might be, or they could be, or I hope they are knowing Jesus. But that we could just start asking them. Thank you, Jim. Did everybody get one? Okay, good. So as you walk and you see people, I just want to stir us again to not being secularized, not dumbing down the gospel, not making it powerless and palatable, but to make it a reality check for those. You know, when I read this line in here, it said, we stand on the platform having been rescued ourselves, and right in front of us are drowning in the sea some of our mates, our children, our relatives, and yet we're still occupied with all the stuff we've got to do. That should strike us in the heart. It strikes me in the heart. And I feel a responsibility to pass it on today. I know this has been an unusual kind of service. And some of you said, well, you could have just mailed me the brochure. I could have read it at home. That's true. And I hope you do. There's something about coming together with the people of God and recognizing our need. Together. Hearing the voice of God. Praying collectively. And making a corporate resolve that we're going to be making a difference in our community. We've got a little building here, but it doesn't mean we couldn't fill it up ten times a week. Amen? Uh, and it's not about a building. I would rather see us in 50 or 100 homes throughout our community. You know, And you cell leaders, I want to commend you for staying faithful to the task that you've taken on in God, for leading people to Christ, for discipling people in your homes, for holding weekly uh, get-togethers where you talk about the love of Jesus and how you're going to penetrate this community. For cell leaders looking for assisted cell leaders to multiply new cells with, we have got to invade this community with truth. It's not looking for it. We're going to have to tell them where it is. You know what? You remember when you came to truth? How happy you were? How dumbfounded you were that you were so lost and didn't know it? Lord, give us a vision again of how lost we were. You know, Look to the pit, the Bible says, from which you were digged out. You know, look back to that shaky, miry clay your feet were in and look at the rock you're standing on now. And every person you come in contact with, you should be so happy to say, my Jesus saved me. And he can save you too. And so I don't need to be saved. Well, that's because they don't know they're lost. Let's begin to pray back the blinders off the eyes of the unsaved in our community. Let's gather this afternoon if we can at three. And I'm not being legalistic. I just invite you to come at three. Veterans Park, let's intercede for our community and for the, the body of Christ throughout this, commun- uh, this country on this weekend specifically. And let's make a difference. Do you believe that when you pray, something happens? Yes. That would not have happened if you hadn't prayed? Yes. Then, then we pray. Father, thank you for your glory. Thank you for your honor that you allow us to see it, that you allow us to participate in it. Thank you, Jesus, that you said the glory that the Father had given you, you gave to us, that we might go. You breathed upon your disciples and said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Receive the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we invite you to fill us, baptize us afresh anew. Circumcise our hearts once again from any callousness or hardness that has encrusted our hearts so that we don't see people with a compassionate eye like you do. Help us to see and feel their need. Help us to observe how lost they are. And then show us again how much truth we hold. 
Teach us, make us skillful workers in your field. Show us how to reap a harvest for you. Teach us how to bring to you the reward of your suffering. Through men and women and children all across this community, stir your body, Lord, into action. Make us a salvation army, if you will. Give us marching orders today to not pass another soul and leave them in darkness, but to shine the light of Jesus Christ, to be salt and light as you called us to be. Help us take the bushel off so that there's light in the whole house. We ask it in Jesus' name, not for our sake, but his and for his glory. Amen. 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 Take another